everybody. Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, and a bunch of things in between. I'm your host, Loyal Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and there's been so much legal news surrounding the former president, Donald Trump, that I think it's time for a recap. So I'm going to go through the big investigations, the four investigations that could lead to criminal or civil charges against Trump. These are the investigations regarding January 6th, both the Select Committee investigation and the Department of Justice investigation, the DOJ investigation into the taking and retaining of government documents. Maybe we can call this the Mar-a-Lago investigation and the Georgia investigation into election fraud. And finally, the New York investigation into financial fraud by the Trump organization. So those are our four things. One, January 6th, two, Mar-a-Lago, three, Georgia, and four, New York. Now, the bottom line here, I think for all of these investigations is can you tie Trump? Can you tie the former president to what appears to be criminal activity? And that's the through line for all of what we're about to talk about. So here we go, let's get started. And let's start with January 6th. Now, as I said before, there's basically two parallel investigations. There's the House Select Committee. Obviously, they don't have the power to indict. They only have the power to make a referral, to basically suggest to the Department of Justice, hey, we found a lot of evidence here, and we think you should indict the former president based on these charges. And then, as I said, there's the parallel investigation by the Department of Justice. We don't know exactly where that investigation is. Obviously, the January 6th Select Committee, their work has been a lot more public, so we know a lot more about that. But let's talk about what we all know, which is that after Trump repeatedly lied to his followers, said the election was stolen without any basis, and then after he spoke at the ellipse on January 6th, saying the election was stolen, we need to do something about this, an angry mob stormed the Capitol and tried to prevent the counting of electoral college votes, and therefore the certification of the 2020 presidential election. Now, during the January 6th committee hearings, we heard a lot, but the theme that they kept coming back to was that Trump was told repeatedly there was no fraud in the election, and Trump said repeatedly there is fraud in the election. Again, the idea here being he couldn't possibly have believed what he was saying. Now, we know that he apparently took steps to try and send these slates of fake electors to the Electoral College. The specific steps that he tried to take, I think, are still in question. But we also know that the January 6th committee, again, a congressional select committee, a reminder, they don't have the power to indict. They only have the power to suggest to the Department of Justice, we really think you should indict here. So. What about the Department of Justice? What are they looking at? Well, I think they're looking at two main potential charges here. And these were already mentioned in a federal judge's order regarding an evidentiary issue about John Eastman, one of the attorneys who was trying to drop this roadmap, this unconstitutional roadmap to send fake electors to the Electoral College. And 
In that decision, the federal judge mentioned two federal crimes. And I still think those are the two that are most likely to be at issue here. And the first one is obstruction or attempted obstruction of an official proceeding. And basically, the federal law here says we have to show that the person obstructed, influenced, or impeded, or attempted to obstruct, influence, or impede an official proceeding of the United States and did so corruptly. Now, what does this relate to? It relates to the fact that the certification of the Electoral College vote was temporarily halted on January 6th when Trump supporters stormed the Capitol. Prosecutors would have to show, as I just said, that Trump had a corrupt intent when he took these steps that were designed to interfere with the certification of the Electoral College vote. Now, essentially, this means having to show that he did something wrong. I personally think we've heard so much from the January 6th committee about how the president, the former president, was told over and over again, there is no fraud. There is no basis for trying to send these, quote unquote, alternative slates of electors that you absolutely could come forward with a case that has to show that the former president had a corrupt intent. So that's the first potential crime here, obstruction or attempted obstruction of an official proceeding. The second that I think is most likely, you know, potentially is conspiracy to defraud the U.S. by disrupting the electoral count. And this is very similar to what we just talked about here. We'd have to show that at least two people entered into an agreement to obstruct a lawful function of the government that they have to do this by deceitful or dishonest means, and that they have to have taken some overt act in furtherance of this agreement. Again, based on everything we already know from the January 6th House Select Committee and other reporting, I would say I think there's enough there. But of course, this is up to the DOJ. So what else are we looking at here? Well, we're looking at other crimes, potentially things like seditious conspiracy. We've also heard discussion of incitement of a rebellion or insurrection. Now for seditious conspiracy, the federal law requires that two or more people have to conspire to overthrow, put down, or destroy by force the United States government or to levy war against the United States. I don't know that the DOJ would decide to move on this. There's another part of seditious conspiracy. It says that it can involve delaying the execution of any law of the United States. Again, I think the more likely charges here would be the obstruction charge or the charge related to trying to defraud the government. Now, again, I mentioned incitement of a rebellion or insurrection. The federal law here says Whoever incites, sets on foot, assists, or engages in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or the laws thereof, or gives aid or comfort thereto, can be found guilty of an incitement of a rebellion or insurrection. You know, I think for a lot of us on an intuitive level, you might say, that's what I saw. It's still different to have the evidence to be able to walk into a courtroom and say, I can prove these elements beyond a reasonable doubt. So stay tuned, obviously, for more on January 6th. But I think that wraps up 
our high level recap of what's going on with respect to the investigations regarding the events leading up to and on January 6th. And next up, this brings us to Mar-a-Lago. Again, we all know the basics of what's happened here. Trump apparently has government documents at one of his private residences, Mar-a-Lago, that he should not have, that he should have returned. And reportedly, some of these documents implicate the most serious of national security concerns. So why did we need a search warrant in the first place? Why did the Department of Justice ask for a search warrant? I'm asking this because Trump has said, look, I would have just given over the documents. And I would say, well, he has said that, but the reporting and the evidence indicates that that's not true. So reporting indicates that initially Trump and his attorneys did hand over 15 boxes of material to the Department of Justice. And then it looks like they basically stopped. Now, the Department of Justice apparently had information that Trump had more material and he wasn't turning it over. And it looks like that's when they issued a subpoena, but Trump didn't comply. And the Department of Justice asked for at that point and was granted a search warrant. Again, I think basically the sequence of events is that the Department of Justice said, you have more. They subpoenaed that information. Trump and his attorney said, no, there is no more. The Department of Justice didn't believe them, and they asked for the search warrant. Again, in the search warrant, what they had to show here in order to get it is that there was a probable cause that there was evidence of a crime that would be found at Mar-a-Lago. And I'll talk about that more in a minute. So in this case, same question here that we asked above regarding January 6th, which is what are the specific charges that we could see here? Now, based on the search warrant, there are basically three statutes at issue. All three would require that the Department of Justice, as far as I can see, would have to prove willfulness, that Trump intended to break the law. I think that's probably satisfied because, as we just talked about, it looks like there were repeated requests by the Department of Justice, please give us this information, please give us these documents. So let's go through again the three statutes. One is the Espionage Act. And it's broader than just espionage. It prohibits the gathering, retaining, or transmitting of national defense information. Now, it was enacted in 1917, well before our current system of classifying and declassifying documents. And the plain language of the statute doesn't require that the information be classified. It requires that the information be regarding the national defense. And I'll talk about that more in a minute, but that's why I think none of these statutes actually depend on the information being classified. Next up, obstruction of justice. This bars the destruction, alteration, or falsification of documents that are involved in federal investigations. Basically, what this means is even if Trump had the right to possess certain documents in the first place, which frankly, it doesn't look like he did, once it becomes clear that those documents are part of a federal investigation, 
Trump no longer has the right to withhold or destroy them, which again is what, at least based on reporting, it appears happened here, that he was withholding the information. And finally, the last statute that's cited in the search warrant, the unlawful taking or destroying of government documents. So this bars people from willfully and unlawfully concealing, removing, mutilating, obliterating, or destroying certain government documents. It applies on its face by the plain language to government records, whether or not they're classified. Now, why do I keep coming back to this issue of classification? Because this really is Trump's main defense, as far as I can see. Now, his defenses have been ever-changing, never twice the same. But as far as I can see, the main defense here is, well, I declassified the information. But as I just mentioned, this doesn't solve the problem. Well, and it's worth mentioning first, it's not at all clear that he actually did declassify the information. He's claimed that he had this quote-unquote standing order to declassify information that he moved to the residence. Declassification can't happen by just waving a magic wand. You have to tell people about it. You have to go through a process. And that's because classifying a document indicates to people only certain people can see this information and it has to be handled in a certain way. If presidents just decided to declassify information without telling anyone, they wouldn't know, well, more people can see this information and it can be handled in a different way. So it just, it makes no sense that a president could either decide in his head or to wave a magic wand. And again, there's no real evidence of this standing order. I think the reporting thus far indicated that over a dozen White House officials said, we've not heard of that. And again, even if the information was declassified, as we just talked about, none of the three statutes are dependent upon the information actually being classified. So thus far, it doesn't look like there's a great defense. As I said, the through line here is whether or not federal law enforcement officers will be able to tie the former president to the apparent criminal activity or whether Trump will say, look, I didn't pack the boxes. I didn't know it was somebody else. Now, what happened at the end of this week regarding this case? Well, media organizations moved to unseal the affidavit, the document that supports the search warrant. And they argued that there's a really, really strong public interest in obtaining this information that President Trump has said, former President Trump has said, there's no there there. This is a witch hunt. It's not legitimate. The best way to see what's going on is to unseal the affidavit, that it'll give us a lot more information than the search warrant itself, and that it'll give us information about the conduct of past and current government officials. All of that is true. But on the other side of the balance is the Department of Justice's argument here. The argument is that they have an ongoing investigation that will be threatened if they have to provide this information, that it will chill witness cooperation, that it could threaten witness safety. And I think this is maybe even the biggest one, that it will threaten national security, that there are serious national security concerns that indicate that this information can't be public. Now, there was just a hearing in front of the magistrate judge, and to my surprise, 
I thought the magistrate judge was just going to say, sorry, media organizations, but there are really important reasons here that we can't be transparent, that we have to protect this information. Instead, what the judge said to the Department of Justice is, I'm putting a greater burden on you. Come back in a week and redact the information that you think needs to be redacted and explain to me why each redaction happened. Again, there's going to be a lot of Department of Justice attorneys who are very busy over the next week. I don't think this is the last word here. A couple of things. One, I think in the end, so much will be redacted that if anything does come out, it probably won't provide us with that much more information. And two, this is an appealable order. So it can be appealed up to a district court judge, up to the Court of Appeals. So in my mind, it's a temporary decision. And again, we're going to have to stay tuned to see what happens in that case. This brings us to the Georgia case. And again, we know the basics of this case. Trump apparently attempted to undermine the 2020 election results in Georgia. And we've heard that phone call. He tried to pressure Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to, quote, find 12,000 votes. I actually think that when we're looking at all of these four investigations, that this is where Trump faces the most immediate potential legal exposure, meaning he could face indictment earliest, perhaps, 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 because there's so many other considerations here. But why do I say that? Because we have so much evidence. We have the audio recording. We have documents. We have witness testimony. And we have Trump's former attorney, Rudy Giuliani, who has been told that he's one of the targets of this investigation, in part because Rudy Giuliani basically did two big things. He talked to groups of state lawmakers and he said, there's massive fraud here. There was a conspiracy to undermine the election. There's no basis for any of those statements. And he also was apparently involved in this fake elector scheme that I briefly mentioned before. Now, legally and factually, I think it's actually quite difficult to separate Giuliani, who is acting as Trump's personal attorney at the time, from Trump. So again, I think that this investigation really does pose a threat to Trump. Now, what are we looking at here in terms of the specifics of a threat? We're looking at solicitation to commit election fraud, again, based on asking for fraudulent votes or electors, potentially Georgia state racketeering. And we have in this case, I think, also a district attorney who is really motivated to continue the investigation. I don't mean politically motivated. I mean legally motivated. And again, if I were to rank, where do I think potentially an indictment could come earliest? It might be Georgia. Now, based on everything we just said about the Georgia investigation, there's also overlap here between what the Department of Justice is looking at particularly with respect to subversion of the election. So we're going to have to wait again. We don't know exactly where this investigation is or what's going to happen, but hopefully that was a quick recap of where we are with respect to the Georgia investigation. Finally, this brings us to New York. 
And there are two parallel investigations. There's a civil investigation by the attorney general and a criminal investigation by the Manhattan DA's office. But they're basically both looking at the same behavior as much as the reporting indicates. And that behavior is whether or not Trump and or the Trump organization fraudulently inflated the value of properties to get favorable loans, better insurance, and even better tax treatment so that they would have bigger write-offs. Now, specifically, what criminal or civil charges are we potentially looking at here? Generally speaking, fraud and tax evasion. What's the latest news in this case? Trump was actually deposed in the civil investigation, again, that's being led by the attorney general, and he pled the fifth. Now, this is his constitutional right against self-incrimination. Apparently, he didn't answer any of the questions or almost none of the questions. And so this does absolutely hurt the investigation in the sense that I think having his testimony would be so important. But as I mentioned before, case law indicates that you can use somebody's decision to assert the Fifth Amendment to create a negative inference in a federal civil case. So basically, in a federal civil case, a jury can ask themselves, well, why didn't he answer? Again, we don't know exactly what is going to happen with respect to Trump, the Trump organization, and this civil case that's being led by the attorney general. But there has been even more news this week. And the news is that Alan Weisselberg, the former CFO of the Trump organization, pleaded guilty to 15 felonies in a tax scheme. Basically, he didn't pay taxes on income and other big perks, but he should have. And he has to pay about $2 million in taxes and penalties. He's going to serve some jail time. It looks like in the end, it will probably be about 100 days. Now, this is bad for the Trump organization. And I think his plea deal says that he could cooperate and provide testimony against the Trump organization, but not necessarily Trump and his adult children. And I think that's probably the key here for a lot of people who are watching. Weisselberg's guilty plea, again, is bad for the Trump organization. It puts him at odds with the Trump organization, but not necessarily Trump as an individual and his adult children. So that's the latest news in the New York investigation as far as we can see. Okay, I think we did it. I also had a great discussion about these topics on the In the Bubble podcast, which I'm sure many of you already listened to. And so for us, for this podcast, again, as always, please subscribe, please rate, please review. I've been more active lately on TikTok. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Levinson Jessica. I hope this high level overview helped and we will talk to you again soon.